As Vicki told you, our theme for the next few weeks will be return. We're returning back to our Sunday school classes. We're returning back to a lot of our ministries. Some of you have uh, returned back from being away for the summer, and we're hoping that we're going to be able to return back to a lot of the normal things that we like to do, hopefully very soon. And so over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at different stories in the Bible that talk about returning back to different relationships and different ministries that God calls us to. This morning, our theme is the word reunion, and we'll be looking at uh, a very special story, one of my favorite stories of the Bible of Jacob and Esau from Genesis chapter 33, and I'm going to read that entire chapter. But before I read that to you, I invite you to bow your heads and join me in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we come to you now with open hearts, hopeful to hear your word. We pray by the grace of your Spirit that the words we hear and the thoughts of our hearts will lead us to your will for all of us as your church and for each of us as your children. Dear God, we love you. We thank you for your love. Amen. So again, Genesis chapter 33, beginning with the first verse. Now Jacob looked up and he saw Esau coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on ahead of them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. When Esau looked up and saw the women and the children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids drew near, and they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And finally Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I I met? And Jacob answered, To find favor with my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. So Jacob said, No, please, if I find favor with you, then accept my present from my hand, for truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God, since you have received me with such favor. Please accept my gift that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have everything I want. So he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go alongside you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and the the flocks and the herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are overdriven for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly according to the pace of the cattle that are before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Sire. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some people who are with me. But he said, Why should my Lord be so kind to me? So Esau returned that day on his way to Sire, but Jacob journeyed on to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his cattle. Therefore, the place is called Succoth. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padamaram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he brought for 100 pieces of money the plot of land which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Last month, while we were out of town, Julianne had a wonderful opportunity to have a reunion with someone special from her life. While we were up in Montreat uh, eating at Assembly Inn, we bumped into the pastor that baptized her some 30 years ago. When she first saw the pastor, I could tell something was wrong. It was Pastor Eddington was his name, Dr. Eddington. And when she saw him across the room, she froze, and I could tell something was wrong. And I I asked her what was going on, and she pointed him out and explained to me that this was the pastor that baptized her many years ago. And of course, I said, well, you need to go and speak to him. You need to go say hello. I'm sure he will love to hear from you. But she said, oh, he wouldn't recognize me. He's long since retired. He's baptized many, many people. He wouldn't remember me at all. And I said, still, you should, you should go and see him, even if he doesn't recognize you. Then she froze again and said, well, that's not the worst part. The worst part is if he does recognize me. Then she went on to explain that her grandfather, who was a wonderful man and a saint of the church, often butted heads with Dr. Eddington, that they often disagreed even as an elder of the church, and so she was worried that if, if, if he recognized her, he would remember her grandfather and that the reunion would not be a happy one. But after a few minutes of talking and, and, and explaining to her that she really needed to reach out to him, I, she got up her courage and she walked over and spoke to him. It was out of earshot. I couldn't hear what they were saying, but she leaned down next to his table and spoke to him for a few minutes. And then he got up and put his arms around her and gave her a great big hug. And as she walked back over to my table, tears were streaming down her face. And I said, is everything okay? And she simply said, he recognized me. And I said, well, did he remember your grandfather? And she said, no, he recognized me made her feel pretty good. When we have reunions, we like to think of reunions as happy times, joyful times, times where we get to see those people that we miss in our lives. But sometimes some of our reunions can, well, be a little tenuous, be a little anxiety driven. Sometimes when we reunite with people from our past that we haven't talked to or seen in a long time, there's a a reason for that, a purpose for that, because we hold some old grudge or we're we're worried about what they might think of us or we're, we're worried about how we've changed and we wonder if we'll have the same relationship with them that we had in the past. And so reunions are not always happy things. Sometimes they can cause us worry, cause us anxiety, cause us to be afraid. And that's exactly what happens in our passage this morning. This passage, this story of of Jacob and Esau in chapter 33, it's actually the climax of the story of Jacob and Esau where they they join together, where they reunite with each other. But the, the story of Jacob and Esau begins many chapters earlier, many years earlier. Jacob and Esau, as you might remember, were were twins, and they quickly became rivals. They were, in fact, it says in the scripture that they were rivals even before they were born in the womb. They fought against each other. And Esau was born first, and so he was his father's favorite. He was the one with the birthright. He was the strong, powerful, older brother, and his his father Isaac loved him the best. Jacob was his his mother's favorite, and and she doted on Jacob and wanted the best things for Jacob. And and these two brothers quickly became rivals, that sibling rivalry that many of us have. Even if you don't have a brother or even if you don't have a sister, I bet all of us in one way or another have a rival in our lives, someone that we just can't get along with, someone that we want to overcome, someone that we want to conquer. We all have rivals like that. 
And so all throughout their lives, Jacob and Esau were rivals. But if you read the scripture, you know that Jacob is the one who's going to win this rivalry. It tells us in scripture that, that the older brother will bow down to the younger brother, that the younger brother will, will lead and conquer the older brother. In fact, it tells us that all 12 tribes of Israel will come from Jacob. We know that Jacob is the hero of the story. And so if you were going to choose a brother to cheer for in this rivalry, I would suggest that you cheer for Jacob. There's just one problem. Jacob is not someone I like to cheer for. Because when you read the story of Jacob and Esau, Jacob is really not that nice of a guy. He lies, he, he manipulates, he's conniving, he does all sorts of things to gain money and power and wealth and status for himself. In fact, early on when his, his mother and his, he and his mother conspire against his father and against his brother to, to steal that birthright away from Esau, you might remember that story. He put on Esau's clothes and put on some, some sheepskin so that he would feel like he was hairy like Esau. And he went up to his blind father and stole that birthright, stole that blessing so that all of Isaac's possessions and all of Isaac's title and all of Isaac's power went to Jacob instead of Esau. Well, you might imagine when Esau heard this, Esau was enraged. He wanted to, to kill Jacob. And in fact, that's what he said. The next time I see Jacob, I will have him killed. Well, as you can imagine, Jacob wanted to stay as far away from Esau as he could. In fact, his mother told him to run away, go away and stay with a man named Laban. And, and there you can build up your wealth. There you can find a wife. There you can build a life and stay protected from Esau. But there with Laban, he started to do the same things. He lied, he cheated, he manipulated in order to gain wealth from his eventual father-in-law, Laban. Jacob is not the kind of person that we like to cheer for in a rivalry. He's not truthful. He's a liar. He manipulates. How can this be the hero of the story? But maybe, just maybe, this is not a story about good and evil. It's not a story about heroes and, and, and enemies. Maybe this is a story that we are supposed to use to hold up to a mirror as a mirror to ourselves so that we can look at ourselves and our own relationships with our own rivals in our lives and learn and understand how God calls us to reunite with our enemies, to love our enemies, to reunite with our neighbors and to be the people that God has called us to be. Maybe this is a story that we're supposed to hold up to ourselves, to look at our own lives, to see how we relate to other people, not as the good people and the bad people, but as neighbors and rivals and enemies who God calls to reunite together. We like to think of our rivalries as, as very simple. We like to make them very simple. We're the good guys and they're the bad guys. We do the right things, they do the wrong things. We know we're on the right side. We have a righteous wind at our backs. They're motivated by evil, by selfishness, by greed. But truth of the matter is, most of the time in our lives, the lines aren't that clearly drawn. Sometimes they're very blurred back and forth. Sometimes we are motivated by what's right, and we're also motivated by our own selfishness. Sometimes we're motivated by what we think God wants, and we're also at times motivated by what we want, what we want inside. Often the conflict that we have with the people around us is, is really a conflict within us of how do I get the upper hand? How do I conquer my neighbor? How do I win? 
I told you this little story years ago. It was a story back when I was working at the church in Charlotte. We had a basketball program there at Charlotte, and, and, and I was one of my jobs was to open up the gym there and every single Saturday morning kind of host, play the host for all of these basketball games. And it was hard for me to get up on Saturday mornings. I'm not going to lie to you. But there was one group of kids I loved to watch play basketball, the five-year-olds. They were the youngest ones. They ran around in a circle just like you might imagine at soccer games, everyone trying to hold the ball at the same time. It was fun to watch them learn how to play the game. And there was one particular uh, five-year-old at our church named Mavis who I loved to watch because she actually had a pretty good shot and she could play pretty well. But there was one particular Saturday where we were playing Myers Park. Her church, her, her team was playing a Myers Park team. And every now and then she would take the ball and run it over to a member of the other team and hand them the ball and hand this little boy the ball, and he would, of course, run and score a basket for his team. She kept doing this over and over and over again, and finally, at halftime, the coach pulled Mavis aside and said, Mavis, why do you keep giving him the ball? And she said, because he's my best friend from school. Well, then the coach had to explain to her, well, he's on the other team. We don't want him to score. In fact, I want you to take the ball from him and go score it in our basket. Get points for us. And so as they came back out on the court at halftime, she walked over to her friend and said, for the rest of the game, we can't be friends. And just like that, a little bit of her innocence was gone. That's that conflict within us when we have rivals. We want to defeat our rivals because we know we would be better off if we could just get the upper hand, if we can win, if we can conquer, if we can defeat those people around us, then that somehow gives us more energy, more power for ourselves. That's what happens with Jacob and Esau. Jacob uses conniving, manipulative ways to get power over Esau, and then he's afraid because he knows he deserves justice in return. And Esau gets angry because Esau knows that Jacob deserves justice too. And in those moments when we know we are at odds with our rivals, in those moments when we know that we can't find common ground with our rivals, then what do we want to do? We want to either get revenge or run away. That's what Jacob and Esau choose to do. Jacob wants to run away to protect himself. Esau wants revenge. But somehow, for some reason, God calls them back together. Like every good story, God calls people back together to face each other, to look each other in the eye, to find some form of reconciliation. And God calls us to do that too. To face our enemies, look them in the eye, to figure out some form of reconciliation or resolution so that we can move forward. Why does God call us to do that? Well, because God knows that that's what we need. That revenge and hatred and anger and misunderstanding, while it might feel good to get revenge against our neighbor, the truth of the matter is it really just eats us alive inside. That's what Frederick Buechner said. He said, of the seven deadly sins, anger is the most delicious. He said, it's a meal fit for a king, but here's the problem. When you are wolfing down your anger, you are truly wolfing down yourself. Anger, fear, guilt, all of those things just eat us alive inside. And we can only get rid of them until we reach out and find a way to reunite with that enemy, with that rival, that person that we seem to hate so much. 
That's what Jesus Christ did for us. Jesus Christ didn't conquer us with revenge. Jesus Christ didn't conquer us with hatred. Jesus Christ conquered us with forgiveness and with love. That's why God calls us to reunite because God knows there is no chance for reunion without forgiveness. There is no future without forgiveness. Some of you may have heard this story before, but back in the 90s when apartheid was stamped out in South Africa, the the government there created a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, a a group of people to come together and try to find a way for this country to to find healing in the midst of all of their brokenness. And one of the the members of that Truth and Reconciliation Commission was a man named Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And people in his his church, people that he knew, came to him and said, if we're going to get reconciliation, then we've got to get retribution. We've got to find a way to get back all the things that we've lost, to get revenge against those people who have hurt us so much. And and he certainly said, yes, we need to find ways to lift up those people who have been downtrodden. But he said, the truth of the matter is we've been given an opportunity here. And he wrote these words, even though we are wounded, we have been given the opportunity to be wounded healers. For there is no future without forgiveness. There's no future without forgiveness. There's no opportunity for us to move forward if we can't find a way to forgive each other from the pain that we've caused each other, to ask for forgiveness and offer forgiveness, to remember once again that that person who we call our enemy, that person that we call our rival, is actually someone God has called us to love. That person that we look across the aisle or across the pew or across neighborhoods and say, that person is so utterly different from me to remember that that person is a child of God as well. And God has called us to love them, to reunite with them, and to forgive them. Or maybe to ask for forgiveness from them. Which brings us to the climax of our story. Jacob and Esau had been avoiding each other, or at least Jacob has been avoiding Esau, but finally that avoidance can't go on any longer. God calls them back together, and Jacob is afraid. In fact, he's so afraid that he, he splits his family up, and the ones that he thinks are the least important up front, the ones he thinks are the most important in the back, because if Esau comes and conquers his family, maybe the ones in the back can run away. He's terrified. He looks across this great plain and he sees Esau with all of his army standing there behind him and he knows he is in trouble. So he walks out across that plain, bowing down seven times, praying and hoping that Esau will not keep his promise and kill him the way Esau promised he would. He bows down again and again, praying and hoping that Esau will not take revenge. But to his surprise... Esau comes running across the field, reaches out and grabs him, hugs him, showers him with kisses and says, it's been so long since I have seen you. Well, Jacob doesn't trust him. Jacob calls his family to come bring gifts, bring gifts to to Esau to try to appease him. And Esau says, what are all these gifts about? I'm just so glad to see you. And, And Jacob says, no, these are for you. We brought all of these gifts for you. And then Esau says, well, why don't you journey on with me a little bit further? We've got a lot of catching up to do. Jacob still doesn't trust him. He says, no, no, we've got got things to do. I don't want my animals to get hurt. We're going to keep journeying on, but it's great to see you. And then Esau says, well, why don't you take some of my men and, and take them with you so that you can be protected? And finally in that moment, Jacob realizes something has changed with Esau. And he asks 
this haunting and powerful question. Why are you being so kind to me? I dare say I don't think any of my enemies have ever asked me that question. Why are you being so kind to me? Esau doesn't answer the question. We're left to fill in the blank. I tend to think that Esau probably came to the field that day ready to get his revenge. I think Esau came with that great big army ready to conquer his brother, ready to take back everything that his rival, his enemy had taken away from him. But as Jacob was crossing that field, bowing down, asking for forgiveness, asking for, for mercy, Esau looked across that field and saw something he hadn't seen in a long time. He looked in the face of his enemy and he saw his brother. He looked in the face of his enemy and he recognized him. He recognized him. His brother, his family member, the one he was called to love. He looked in the face of his enemy and saw the one he was called to love. That's what God calls us to do as well. To look at our enemies around us in the world. And to remember once again that they are not that unlike us. To remember once again that they are children of God just like you and just like me. Because that's the only way reunion will happen. Reunion cannot happen without forgiveness. And so the future won't happen without forgiveness. To the glory of God. Amen.